0: Today I'm really excited actually to talk to you about the Trinity because my study leading into this has um, messed with my soul. Like it's been a beautiful thing to be reminded of the deep and abundant love of God and that's found in the Trinity. So before we dive in, let me uh, open in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your deep love for us. I pray that you would move in our hearts, that you would speak out of my mouth and through my thoughts, I don't want to be in the way. Would you say the things that you want to say in a way that you want to say it? God, we give this to you and ask your spirit to move. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so I have 38 minutes to teach you about the Trinity that I've been learning about for 38 years. Um, This is not a light topic, it's not a simple topic, but it is so beautiful. And uh, so today we're gonna take some time to dive in. We're gonna talk about God, specifically the God of Christianity, described as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I've titled today's message, The Trinity, A Beautiful Dance. I wanna start off by telling you a creation story from a different religion. It's from Babylon, about 2000 BC. It's called the Enuma Elish. It was discovered, uh, I don't even remember, I should have wrote that down. It was discovered a few years ago and is considered one of the oldest creation stories out there. So the Enuma Elish begins with water swirling in chaos. It's a chaotic picture. And the waters separate and one becomes a god, and one becomes a goddess. The god is the fresh water, Apsu, and the goddess is the salty, bitter water. Sorry, ladies. Uh, Tiamat. And together they birth the other gods of Babylon. So with all these gods running around, Apsu couldn't sleep. He's just like fed up. You guys got kids in the house? You, you know, running around, waking up. He couldn't sleep anymore with all these other gods around. So he uh, decided, let's eliminate them all. And uh, his wife, Tiamat, didn't like that idea, so she told her oldest son. Her oldest son decided to kill his dad, and then uh, she didn't like that, so she made a whole bunch of monsters to go after all the gods that killed her husband. And then one of her sons rose up. His name was Marduk, and he is the god of Babylon, of ancient Babylon. Marduk rose up, shot an arrow at Tiamat, hit her right between the eyes where she split in half, One of her eyes became the Tigris and one became the Euphrates, which are the key rivers in ancient Mesopotamia. You follow me? You follow me? Cool. Marduk then creates humans out of the corpses of all these gods that helped him out and died. This is a violent story. It's kind of gross. And yet so much of our narratives of our gods from the past and present are based out of violence, are based out of um, just anger and revenge and all of these other things. And um, I don't know where you're coming from today and what your religious background is, but let me tell you this, that what you believe about God determines the way that you live. Yep. And so Babylon, Greece, Rome, these nations with violent gods lived out violent activity. And so for us, as we talk about who God is, we have to wrestle with that question too. Who is he and how does it impact my life? You might be in here, you might be atheistic, you might be agnostic, you might be a deist, you might have years of baggage from the faith that you have been in or have left. And what I wanna challenge you with today is that the love of God covers over all of that. And so I'm so excited to be able just to tell you about what the Trinity is. Because I know in here, we've got people with a wide variety of religious backgrounds, irreligious backgrounds. And there's a lot of confusion when it comes to this topic of the Trinity. But in Christianity, the doctrine of the Trinity is very important. So important, I'd say that without an understanding of it, it's highly likely that you don't understand who God is. You don't understand who Jesus is or the Holy Spirit or the incarnation or the crucifixion or the resurrection, I would highly suggest that you don't understand who you are and why you've been made without an understanding of who the Trinity is. And so today we're gonna work through that together. Uh, Millard Erickson says, the doctrine of the Trinity is crucial for Christianity. And Charles Spurgeon says, to believe and love the Trinity is to possess the key of theology. This seems pretty important, worth diving into. So we're going to work through our statement of faith today. And like I said, today will be a little bit more of of a teaching topic rather than a preaching topic, but I think it'll get at the heart of who God is and his great and deep love for us. So we're going to work through our statement of faith together. We're going to go phrase by phrase, which means I get six points to communicate the Trinity to you today. And um, it's going to be awesome. I truly believe that. I'm expectant of what God's gonna do in here and through this. So our statement of faith is this. We believe there's one God, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These three are co-equal in power and glory and co-eternal in nature and being. And if you're looking for where that is, it's on page 20 of your tethered journal. As we continue through our tethered series, uh, we are on page 20. So the first question that comes out on this is, who's God? Who is God? And wh- this is a fundamental question for every human being to ask and try to answer. Because right. when I began preparing for the sermon, it's a, it's a big idea topic right. uh, with the Trinity. And so I started, I just asked, where do I even start? Do we, I don't even know where to begin to try to talk this through. And it, and it turned out that was sort of just a, like, what was me sort of question at first. And it, it evolved into this. This is a necessary question to answer. Where do we start? And a lot of times we start in the wrong place. We start with the idea of God. We start with an idea. And what I mean by this is that we have a concept of who God could or should be. It's usually formed by our own personal context. We start to frame a God based on our own experiences based on our own desires, based on our own will. And our experience makes us feel a certain way about about God and informs our ideas of who God is and should be. So people's ideas about God are incredibly different in a time of war versus a time of social peace. People's ideas about God are very different when their relationships are healthy versus when their relationships are in conflict. People's ideas about God are very different when they're facing illness or when they feel healthy. Our context greatly shapes the way that our ideas come out about who God is. And in fact, sometimes we even start with a biblical idea of who God is that can twist or, or inform, it can just be a wrong starting spot to talk about God. So I drove in this morning, um, I come from the West, so I drive East. And when you drive East in the morning right now, it's spectacular, the Wasatch are full of colors. Yeah. Green, uh, green, a little bit of green. Some yellows, reds, the white cap Mountains. Yeah. When I came in this morning, the sun was just starting to poke up, so I got peach and pink and lavender. Yeah. It was spectacular. It, it, it's not hard when you look at that to go, man, there is a creator. Right. There is a creator out there. There's no way this beauty happens on accident. And it's true, God's a creator. But if we start in that spot spot as our starting spot for who is God, we don't get the full picture of who he is. And it's true that he is a creator, but it's not the right starting spot. Because then we try to strap on Jesus or the Holy Spirit, wrap it in duct tape and try to figure out what this Trinity three-in-one thing is. And And it's all because we started at the wrong spot. We started at the wrong starting spot. So if God's identity is simply the creator, then he has to have a creation in order to be God. So he's reliant on something else. It's not a great starting spot. Here's something I've discovered. Rather than start with the idea of God, we need to start with the revelation of God. Rather than start with an idea of God, we need to start with the revelation of God. So how do we know anything about God unless he reveals it to us? Everything else is just guesswork. Pastor Jason talked about this when we talked about the Bible a few weeks back. We have to understand that God reveals himself. And so we're going to start with the Bible today and look and see what it says about the Trinity. Now, if you go to the back and you're trying to find Trinity in the the pages in the back, you go to the table of contents and try to find Trinity, you're not going to find it. The word Trinity is not in your Bible. But let me tell you, Trinity is all over your Bible. It's not going to appear in there, but that doesn't mean it's not there. So write this down. The Trinity is an underlying assumption throughout the Bible that is revealed as we read the Bible. The Trinity is an underlying assumption throughout the Bible that's revealed as we read the Bible. So because of that, we have a lot of scripture today. Somebody told me it was like 45 verses. I I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I didn't count them, but there's a lot, and I know that because I know how long my notes are. Um, So we've got a lot of scripture to work through today, and we're gonna get six points today based off of our statement of faith, just working through it phrase by phrase, and I think that's good. So number one, can you shout, number one? Number one, we believe there is one God. We believe there is one God. The Bible is super clear that there's one God. Not three gods, not a pantheon of gods, and not that you can one day become a god. Amen. So you ready for some Bible today? Yeah. All right, Deuteronomy 6.4, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yeah. Isaiah four six. this is what the Lord, the King of Israel and its Redeemer, the Lord of armies says, I'm the first and I'm the last, there's no God but me. Isaiah 45.5, I'm the Lord and there is no other. There's no God but me. Yeah. Romans 3.30, there is one God. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God. Yeah. James 2.19, you believe that God is one good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Woo. So let me ask you this question. Is the Bible pretty clear yeah. that there's one God? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is the Bible clear there's one God? Yeah. Are there more than one God? No. Hey, you got that one? Great. Number one was done. Grab that, wrap it up, fold it, put it in your pocket. Okay? We're going to come back to it a little later. Number two, eternally existent in three persons. Sometimes I think God's pretty bad at math. Because when we have an idea like this, I I took elementary math. You guys took, I assume all of you took elementary math. I even got to uh, advanced calculus at one point never once could someone show me that three equaled one, or that one equaled three. That's like some kind of fantasy math. But that's what this doctrine is holding to, that somehow the three and the one are the same, but not exactly the same. And so, I think it's just uh, beautiful. I was doing a little bit of work. I didn't say this in any of the other services, but uh, doing a little research. Did you know that light is considered both a wave and a particle? Yes. And if you ask an, ask an astrophysicist, they'll be like, yep, both of those are true. And I just think that's super amazing right. because they can hold that intention. And yet we say, oh, the Trinity can't be true because we can't hold these things in tension. And uh, I just, it's awesome. So who are the three? These are the three, the Father, sometimes referred to as God or Lord. The Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Word, in the Old Testament often referred to as the angel of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit, also referred to as the Spirit of God or just the Spirit. So again, rather than starting with an abstract idea of who God is, I want to start with some concrete statements revealed by God through the Bible. So let's start with this question, who Or what was God doing before creation? What was God doing before any of this ever existed? So God's eternal. We read in Psalm 90, verse two, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. So God existed before any of this was ever made. You agree with me? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah? All right. So this is Jesus speaking. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you've given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. That's found in John 17, 24. Before the world's foundation. Before the world's foundation, God the Father loved Jesus the Son. You guys grab that? Before there was anything, there was an existence of love in relationship before anything ever came into existence, there was a loving relationship between the father and the son. Love pre-exists people. Love pre-exists animals, pre-exists marriage, even pre-exists tacos, right? Love existed before any of this. There was a loving relationship. All right, that's the second thing you get to fold up and put in your pocket. Now we'll talk about the persons of the Trinity. So, number three is the Father. So, from that verse that we just read before, we know that before anything existed, the Father existed. Before anything existed, the Father existed. It's his nature to be a Father. And I realize in this room, there's going to be those of us that do not like the idea of God as Father. Because our fathers were jerks. Our fathers were mean, abusive, cruel, absent, manipulative. I realize that. I know sometimes when I think about God as father, my my dad, I, I love my dad, but he had a temper issue at times. And so there's times when I'm reading or thinking about God, the father, that I superimpose my dad onto that and think, oh, God's just temperamental. He's got, got a temper. He's going to react big at me when I do something wrong. And that's just not true. So for those of you that have um, those images of Father, can you, can you set them aside just briefly here and listen to what, what we hear about God as Father in Scripture? So here's another pile of Scripture coming your way. Exodus 4.22 This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Isaiah 63, 16, you, Lord, are our father. Your name is our redeemer from ancient times. Isaiah 64, 8, yet, Lord, you are our father. We're the clay and you are our potter. We all are the work of your hands. Romans 1, 7, to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called to saints, grace you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 15, 6, so that you may glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. 1 Corinthians 1, 3, grace you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him and we exist for him and there is one Lord Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. And 1 Peter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Yeah. So one, in, a, in our uh, tethered books, we've put in the, near the back a list of some resources, and this book, Delighting in the Trinity, has been a fantastic resource for me. When uh, reading learning about the Trinity. So if this whets your appetite a little bit, may I suggest that you help uh, Dr. Michael Reeves out a little bit and pick up his book, um, but it's listed back there. I, I'm telling you, this um, has messed with my heart and my soul, uh, reading through and studying with this. And I'm so thankful um, for it. He quotes in this book, the most foundational thing in God is not some abstract quality, but the fact that he's a father and he's a father all the way down. That means that everything that he does is from being a father. And what we learn is that the father is love. First John 4, 8 says, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. <coughs> God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Because love requires an object. You can't love nothing, it requires an object. And the Father is love and loves the Son. One of the things that I've, I get a lot of questions about are hard passages in scripture, so we read passages in the Bible and go, oh man, these are, uh, it's really hard to read. This doesn't sound like the God, like the God of the Old Testament That sounds angry and the God of the New Testament seems really nice. Well, I don't think any, either of those are true. God's not nice, God's holy. Like, (laughs) nice is not the right adjective. But he's also not angry, he's holy. And so he's also father in all of that. And so everything that he does is as a father all the way down. And so I've learned that as I read hard things in the Bible, things that sound uh, maybe ugly, violent, hurtful, things like that, when I read it through the eyes of the father it changes the way that it uh, comes out. So does the Bible declare that God is Father? Yes. 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 Does the Bible declare that God is Father? Yes, Yes, thank you. All right, number four, the Son. So the Son is the Son because the Father is the Father. You have to have a father. There has to be a son for a father to exist or at least some kind of offspring, right, for fatherhood to be there. And to be the son, you've got to have a father. And so they define one another. Because if, the if there was a time when the son did not exist, somehow the son was created at a later time, then the father wouldn't have been the father. The son is the object of the father's love through all eternity. So again, back to John seventeen, twenty four. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you've given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. In Matthew three, sixteen through seventeen we read, And when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens were suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In John 10:36 through 38, this is Jesus speaking. And he says, Do you say you're blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said, I'm the Son of God? If I'm not doing my Father's works, don't believe me. Jesus is awesome. He's, he is downright savage. Cuts to the point. But if I'm doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way you'll know and understand that the Father's in me and I am in the Father. And in 1 John 4, 15, we read, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him, and he in God. I'm going to throw some rapid-fire verses at you right now. So if you are taking notes, get ready. I want to show you a list of people in Scripture. This isn't everybody, but a list of everyone who declared that Jesus was the Son of God. Are we ready? All right. All right. John the Baptist says, "'I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God, Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe you're the Messiah, the son of God who comes into the world. John says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The disciples in the boat during the storm worshiped him and said, truly, you're the son of God. Peter says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Unclean spirits saw him. They fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Chief priests and criminals said, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I'm the son of God. The Roman centurion who is next to the cross as Jesus breathed his last breath said, truly, this man was the son of God. Jewish leaders said before Pilate, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. And Paul, who had an encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, who was a trained Jewish scholar who took time to analyze and come to terms with his experience and his learning, his first message that he preached was he is the son of God. And the author of Hebrews says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. The son is God made known in the flesh. Jesus is the son of God. He's the one who makes it possible for us to have a relationship with God. So then the question comes, is the son actually God? Is the son actually God or is it just some relationship that they might have? You know, like God's putting his hat on him just to say, you've got some powers now. That's not true. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he came as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And again in Colossians 1:15, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and by him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The son, Jesus, is not less than God. The son, Jesus, is not a human that God empowers with special gifts at a certain point in time. The son, Jesus, is not God wearing a different hat at a different place in time. The son equals God. The son is ultimately, ultimately the sharer of God the share of God. Have you guys ever met a good sharer? Someone who shares really well, someone who's generous, who gives things out. I met a gentleman a couple of weeks ago. He had this really nice pair of boots and, uh, and I, just, I complimented him on his boots. I'm like, hey, those boots look great. And he's like, oh, mate, he's Australian. That's as far as I'm gonna go with my Australian accent. Oh, mate. He's like, these are the most comfortable boots I've ever worn. I'm like, wow, yeah, they look nice. And he's like, what size are you? And I was like, I'm an eight. Like I have really small feet. And he's like, oh, if they were your size, I would have just given them to you. I was like, what? That is the weirdest I have not had. I don't have a category for that as generosity for me, that you would say these are the most comfortable boots I've ever owned. If they fit you, you can have them. What size are you is what he asks me. What size are you? And here's the thing the Son is the sharer of God. He says, I have this great love that I've received from the Father. I want to share this with you. I want to be generous with this love that I get from the Father. What size are you? What size are you? I want to share this with you. Do you want to know who God is, what He is like, and experience Him? That's done through the Son Jesus. Yep. So we read in Matthew 11:27, "All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him." First John 5:12 says, "The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life." And in 1 John 5:20 it says, "We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one that is in his son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God and eternal life. So does the Bible say that Jesus is the son of God? Yes. Does he say that the son is God? Yes. yes, it does. Number five, Holy Spirit. So what about the Holy Spirit? I grew up in a tradition where the spirit often was overlooked. Some of you grow up in a, spirit, in a tradition where the spirit is the ultimate, to experience, and what I want to say is, the Spirit is the way that God shows His love for the Son through the outpouring of His Spirit. There's this beautiful entwining of them, but sometimes, I, like the tradition that I grew up in, I always thought the Spirit was kind of ghostly. We sang the Doxology earlier, right? Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I was like, "Thank you, King James, for that." You know, we got we got a Holy Spirit that's more like nearly headless Nick you know, from Harry Potter, just doling out little tidbits of information so we can find our chamber of secrets, you know? Like, it's just, and that's how we think of him, though. We get these weird images of what, what the spirit is, but, man, the spirit is beautiful. The word spirit means breath and wind. Breath gives life, right? The wind is powerful, influencing, moving. There's motion and movement in all of this. I love it. Just take a moment with me, if you will. Can you just breathe in with me? out. Okay, one more time. Can you feel the movement in there? The life that it brings into your lungs? Some of you haven't taken a deep breath since you arrived in here. You know, what's it gonna say? But, we feel, it feels like the tide, right? This movement of life, this yeah. ebb and flow, this beauty that comes in. And that's what the Spirit is. The Spirit brings life in breath, yeah. brings power in wind. Yeah. But the Spirit's not ethereal. It's not a force that's moving. It's very personal. Yeah. It's, Spirit is personal. How many of you in here have had a personal encounter with the Holy Spirit? Personal encounter with God. You say, I've had a personal encounter with God. A lot of hands in here. I know a lot are not up, and we haven't. And I understand that. That was me for a very long time. But that's God's desire to have a personal relationship and encounter with us. And when we say yes to Jesus, we're told that the Spirit comes and indwells us and allows us that relationship with God that you can't experience just on your own power your own might, or any of that. God's Spirit, we're told, dwells within us, and we're told that the Spirit is our counselor, our advocate, our teacher, and the giver of gifts. I love in Luke 11, it says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And in 1 Corinthians 2, now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, Since the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Spirit searches the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except his spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we've not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. God has given us his spirit. right. Point number six. This is the longest point. If you thought we were going to get done early, I'm sorry. This is by far my longest point. Number six, these three are co-equal in power and glory and co-eternal in nature and being. Co-equal in power and glory and co-eternal in nature and being. This is where the mind has to stretch. This is where I'm like, I, can I even grasp one in power and glory, let alone three in that one in the power and glory? but they're co-equal. There are moments in the Bible where all three persons of the Trinity are present. We read about Jesus' baptism early. earlier. He is in the water. The dove, the spirit descends like a dove and God, the father voices out, this is my beloved son. In creation, we'll see in a moment, all three are present. In creating man and woman, God says, let us make man in our image. Then he creates male and female in their image. There's something about the the two that shows the image of God. And when Jesus commissions his disciples, he says in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you and remember I'm with you always to the end of the age. Did you notice a little word in there? Name. Name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. That's singular. That's one name for three. A singular name. But the persons of the Trinity do play different roles. They have different tasks that they do, different things that they go about. We do not have time to go into all of them, but I do have a slide up here that will help maybe show you some of the things that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit do that are unique to them. They have uniqueness even though they're all God. Yeah. You can take a picture. We'll send it out on social media too. I grew up, uh, I became a Christian in high school. And, um, you know, in high school, they, they, they would try to teach on the Trinity and they'd give these examples, these analogies of things. So I've been told an analogy that the Trinity is like an egg. So there's a shell and a white and a yolk. And... That's a pretty terrible analogy. (laughs) I've been told that the Trinity is like the phases of water, gas, liquid, and solid. Also a terrible analogy. And one of the things that I've learned is that we, we try to come up with these analogies rather than let the Bible speak for itself. And so today we've really worked hard to work through what does the Bible say about the Trinity. And I love, one of the things I do love though is when artists try to depict Different ideas and different thoughts because sometimes it helps our imagination and so I've put on, this, on the screen behind me uh, three different artistic renditions of uh, the Trinity. One of them is by um, a Russian man uh, around 1400. His name is Andre Rublev. The one in the middle is a Baroque Trinity by Hendrik van Balen in 1620 and this one uh, on the other side is on a French. Uh, uh, stained glass in a French cathedral. And I think these are pretty amazing because you can see some of the things that, that the artists are concerned about. Here we have three, Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, they all have all their postures, matter, all the things in the background, which a lot of them are rubbed off because it's so old. But even reaching for the cup, the unity, of the directions, their hands are pointed, the mutual submission that they have to one another are all speaking of this relationship in the Trinity. But it falls short because we have three. We don't have one. And even this one in the middle, we have uh, the Son and the Father and the Spirit as a dove in the middle. This is done by a Belgian, and so he pictured God as an old white dude, right? This is how we identify God in our context so often from our own experience. So he is a white European dude, so he painted (laughs) God as a European dude, and Jesus as a white European dude. And Angels as babies. I still don't know where that comes from. But um, never grab the angels from babies. But then, and then this one is a stained glass. Do you see the three faces? But how they're all intertwined? I love this. There's something beautiful about that. There's an artist trying to depict this oneness, how they're, they're of the same mind, same connection together. And then there's a symbol that... Christianity is adopted over time. It's an old Celtic symbol. And um, it's uh, this one right behind me. I love this symbol. This will be a tattoo if I ever get one. I, um, do not, you can't have it. It's mine. I got dibs. That's mine. <laughs> um, but I, I love this symbol because you can see there's three things in there, right? Yeah. Like you can, you can see three, but it's also just one thing. And, and you realize that if you remove one of them, it's not the same thing anymore. Yeah, right. or, if you, or if you make one of them lesser, it's not going to be the same thing anymore. Yeah. And there's equality. And even there's a sense of motion in the way that it looks. It feels like it's moving yeah. in a way. And I love this because I think it really plays a great picture of what the Trinity is. Be- I love it. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis. that says, perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions, religions that in Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of dance. And if we take Lewis's image of a dance, a dance between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, a dance of mutual joy and love for one another, it paints this beautiful picture for us we get to we get to see how this three and one starts to operate. How there's submission, not no one's leading the dance. They take turns and they move in motion together. So I want to give you an example of how the dance plays out in the Bible, because you know, we can have this great idea of a dance, but if it's not scriptural, it's just a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. So we're gonna look at creation, and I want to start with creation in the book of John. It says, in the beginning was the word. We know the word is Jesus because of a verse later on. But the, the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. We have key elements in this passage. We have the Word who's with God and also God. We have all things being created through the Word. We have life and light that has come through the Word and that the Word became flesh. That's how we know that it's Jesus, the one and only Son who is himself God. Now with those lenses, let's read the creation narrative in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. The key elements in here is God was in the beginning. There's watery depths with the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the waters. God spoke, and there was light. Have you ever wondered why God created the universe by speaking rather than thinking? I mean, wouldn't it, haven't you always wanted genie powers and just be like, I want it, and you just think it and there it is? But God spoke. He didn't use genie powers. He spoke it into existence. He could have thought it, but thinking you can do by yourself. Speaking it requires somebody to hear it. It it requires relationship. God speaking creation into existence requires a relationship was already there. It's an inherently relational act. So if we take John 1, if Jesus is the word and Jesus is the light, as John 1 says, then the spoken word of God shows the agency of the Son at work in creation and the Spirit present, all three being evident there. Try to experiment with me for a second. Without letting air out of your lungs, say, let there be light. Oh, you guys are so much better than the other services. They all cheated. You can't do it, right? If you don't let breath out, you can't speak. If you don't let breath out, you can't speak. You can't do it because speech requires intent, the thoughts behind what you want to say, the words, and the breath. Speech requires the intent of the Father, the Word, Jesus Christ, oh, and the breath of His Spirit oh, to put creation into existence. So There's something about the speech of the triune God. It's different than that other creation narrative, right? There's no violence. There's no violence. What we find is it's an outpouring of love. Yes. You ever ask why you were created? why God even bother making this whole thing? I used to build Lego stuff and I would take it and I'd put it on a shelf so that my kids wouldn't jack it all up, (laughs) right? So why did God go through the hassle of making all of this just for us to mess it all up? It's an outpouring of his love. So the love that exists in the relationship of the Trinity has often been equated to an abundant fountain, a fountain that just overflows with love. We don't have time to go through all the attributes of God. There are so many, and we don't have time. But I want to talk about one core one, and that's this. God is love. 1 John 4, 8, like we read earlier, the one who does not love God does not know God. Excuse me. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Let me be clear. God is love, but love is not God. It doesn't go both directions on that one. Because God is God, he gets to define what love is. And he defined it this way He sent his son, whom he loved before creation existed, to die for you and me. That's love defined. So God's not an example of love, he's not even the best example of love. He is love itself. Paul David Tripp says this, the Trinity is the ultimate community, functioning in perfect unity and love without argument, debate, or disagreement. It's because God is Trinity that he is love. Because we make a lot of errors about love in our life. We think that we get to define it, then wonder why we can never seem to find it. We try to define it on our own terms, wonder why it's fleeting, why we think we have it in one moment and then it's gone in the next. We... We desire love. We want to be loved. We want to be filled. We want our life to have meaning. We want it to have purpose, but we wonder why we can't find it, why it's always lacking, and it's because we're defining it. I love this verse in Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed a double evil. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they've dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. Cisterns were like pits in the ground that collected rainwater in the desert. And he's saying, you've tried to create this thing for yourself and you've totally not, like, thrown my love away. We read this in John 4 about the woman at the well. There's a, a woman who meets Jesus at the well in the heat of the day and supposedly she's there in the heat of the day because then no one else is there. But she meets Jesus and Jesus tells her, I can give you living water. And she's like, dude, you don't even have a bucket. What, what are you talking about? Like, there's this well, but I've got the bucket. You don't. How are you going to give me living water? And he says, well, you know what? Hey, we're going to sidetrack this. Why don't you go and get your husband? And she's like, well, I don't have a husband. He's like, you're right. You've had five. And now the guy that you're living with is not your husband. Jesus does not tell this to her to shame her. And he does not tell this to her to show that he is all-knowing of all things. He tells this to her because she has created six cisterns that are cracked and unable to hold water. She is trying to manufacture love in her life. She's a deep need that she's been going after and after and after trying to find love. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you living water, an abundant flowing fountain from my father. That only comes through me. He wants to show her she has had a warped view of love. She's got six cracked cisterns. He wants to show her the fountain of living water, the deep love found in the Trinity. It's a love that doesn't stop. You don't need to dig a pit to try to catch it. You just need to bathe in it. Wow. So today, maybe you've tried to fill your, fill your own cracked cistern. You tried to create and manufacture love in your life, and you've wondered, why, where is it? why can't this stay with me? Maybe today you have a different view of the love God has for you. I hope so. That's my prayer. The love found in the Trinity is made available to you through the Father's sending of the Son to die on the cross for you. The Son willingly submitted to the Father to share the love they have together and suffered on your behalf. The Spirit moves in and through you to convict you of sin and to reveal that this is true to you. And together they're in this dance to let you know the beauty of God's love. So today, and I wanna give you the opportunity to say yes to the love of God. So if you would, if you would bow your head and close your eyes. If you've never experienced the abundant love of God and today you want to say, yes, I want to do that through the Son, showing me the love of the Father by the power of the Spirit. I'm gonna give you the opportunity to do that. So if you would, just I'm gonna ask everybody in here to pray this prayer with me. Father, if you just repeat after me, I'm sorry. Father, Father. Son, Son. Holy Spirit, Spirit. thank you for your love. love. Father, Father. thank you for sending your Son. Son, Son, Son. thank you for being willing. willing. Spirit, Spirit. Thank thank you for your power. Today, I want to follow you. I want to accept your gift of love and follow you the rest of my life.